Thank you, Todd. Good morning, Bethel South. Oh, come on. Good morning, Bethel South. Thank you. Good. It's, it's so good to be here. You'll learn about me that uh, one of the things that I encourage and enjoy is participation. So, because that, uh, I said this morning, and I'm going to issue this plea again, I'm going to need some volunteers to be my helpers. Somebody want to volunteer to help me out this morning? I just need a few people that, that'll say that I'm going to say amen. Thank you. We got thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I need that. I need all the help I can get. Listen, it's a blessing to be here this morning with you. Uh, Ross is not on vacation in the Caribbean. He is actually preaching at, at the Hope Campus this morning. So he is there and I'm here and it's such an honor to be here with you. Uh, there is a word this morning from the Lord and it's found in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll read verses 1 through 13. And I'll just ask you to join me there as I read from the uh, ESV version and it renders the text in 1 Samuel chapter 16 this way. The Lord said, to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Jesse said, and Samuel said, rather, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called to Benadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. But we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had, had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. For the last few weeks, at Bethel, we have been going through a series entitled The Attributes of God. And today from this passage I read for you, I'd like to talk about one of God's attributes, and that is God's wisdom. 
Like talk about God's wisdom as it is on display, 1 Sam chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to ask you first, if you'd allow me to share a news flash with you. Would you, would you allow me to do that? There's, a new, there's some breaking news this morning. Here it is. You ready? Here's the breaking news. There is a categorical and definitive difference between our wisdom and ways and the wisdom and ways of God. Now, that was news. <laughs> to some of you, that was real news. <laughs> Amen. But there is, there's a huge gap between how we do things and the way God does things. Uh, while God may certainly uh, be known by mankind, he is still incomprehensible in the totality of his person and purposes. His thoughts and ways are higher than ours. In fact, he says so in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, because it's there that God says these words, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are totally different from ours. They're, 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 they're much more uh, deep, deep, they're deeper than ours are. It's important for us to always recognize and acknowledge some things about God when dealing with him in these areas. It's important for us to remember that our minds are finite, while his mind is infinite. Our wisdom is limited, while his is unlimited. Our understanding has boundaries, while his is as vast as the very universe that he himself created. Our vision is restricted. There's just some things we can't see, but God has x-ray vision. For these reasons, we must surrender ourselves to complete dependence on and total trust in the wisdom of God and not our own. I know most of us will agree and will be able to testify that we're guilty oftentimes of depending on our own wisdom and depending on our own knowledge and depending on ourselves. And God does not want us to do that because he realizes and he wants us to realize that we have limitations. It is only so far that we can go. Jonathan Edwards, that noted Puritan preacher from the 1700s said this of this subject. Jonathan Edwards says, a truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his power, of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and to guide him and his and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. That's, that, that's what Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards says. We have to depend totally on God. I like what Paul says about it. Paul has something to say about this subject in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says this. Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency, he says, is from God. We have to lean and depend and trust in the all-wise and all-knowing, omniscient God. 
lean not to our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge him knowing that he will direct our path. Uh, I love the way the 11th century philosopher and Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury articulates his thoughts on this topic when he says, Lord, I acknowledge and I thank thee that thou hast created me in this thine image in order that I may be mindful of thee, may conceive of thee and love thee. But that, but that, but that image, he says, has been so consumed and wasted away by, by vices and obscured by the smoke of wrongdoing that it cannot achieve that for which it is made, except thou renew it and create it anew. He says, I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate thy sublimity, for in no wise do I compare my understanding with that. But I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. God wants us to trust completely in him. In fact, he desires it so much that he solicits our surrender. And often he demonstrates his prowess as it relates to wisdom, uh, not just to show off how big and how bad he is. He does it so that throughout life, he can teach us some valuable lessons. Oftentimes, I know I can speak for myself, those lessons go unreceived because even as many times as God has shown up and shown me that he knows more than I do, still, sometimes, I default. That was an amen spot right there. You see, I thought I had a team out there. Y'all letting me down. Because you have to admit that you default also to your own wisdom. And even looking back on it, we realize how much trouble it's got us in. And still, we, we continue to default to our own wisdom. And God does not want us to do that. And so, throughout life, he teaches us valuable lessons about how to live life and how to depend on him. Some of these valuable lessons we can find hidden in this passage that I've read for you today from 1 Samuel chapter 16. If I might, I'd like to discuss God's wisdom as recorded in this story. I see some things in this story that highlight for me, and hopefully they will highlight for you God's wisdom on display. First thing I see is found in verse 1, and that is this. God's wisdom is unmatched. His wisdom is unmatched. Can I give you just a brief definition of what that means? Here's what it means. It means to be unmatched is, in this context, is to be unrivaled, to be sovereign above all others, alone, having supreme authority, supreme power, supreme ability, supreme rank, and supreme resources. Now, I know oftentimes we think we fit that definition, but we don't. We don't fit that. We're not supreme. God's wisdom is unmatched. Mary Hughes says something about it. Mary Hughes says this, God is the supreme uncreated light of which wisdom is born. There was never a time, Hugh says, uh, when God's wisdom did not exist. And I like to put my spin on and say it another way. Here's what I like to say. Can't nobody beat God being God. 
That was my, that was my version of it. Can't, can't, now I know it doesn't line up grammatically and all that, but listen, that's just the way I talk sometimes. Can't nobody beat God being God. That was another amen spot right there. Uh, he, he, watch this. He's often imitated, but he's never duplicated. He's never because he is unmatched. You'll recall that Satan, then known as Lucifer, tried it, and it didn't go too well. It, the record of it is recorded in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and it's there we find these words about what happened when Lucifer tried to elevate himself to the same level of, of which God was. It says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I, listen, let me pause there for a minute before I finish this and give you this warning. Anytime you're saying something and there's a whole lot of eyes in it, there's trouble coming. <laughs> If you, if you, if you uh, repeat or recite a paragraph, if you're praying, if you're talking, and the word I constantly comes up, there's a problem. And Satan continues to talk about me, myself, and I, and it doesn't go too well because at the end of it, is he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And we all, we all know how that story played out. He's cast out of heaven and he is banished. And because he attempts to elevate himself to the level of God. In verse 1 of our text, we see the unmatched authority of God on display. Because it's in verse 1 that we find three affirmative conclusive statements. In, in this verse, we see two I haves and one I will. Uh, two I haves and one I will. Let me read it for you one more time. It says this, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since, here it is, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God makes these statements and, 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 as crazy as it is, we make the same statements oftentimes. There's a difference, though. Uh, we're guilty of making those statements, but there's a difference when we make them and when God makes them. We often make those statements, but the difference is, is that when God says that he has the power and the authority and the unrivaled wisdom to bring it to pass, I can say those things and have the best of intentions, but because of my limitations, I may not be able to do it, but I serve a God who whatever he says, he's able to do it. And so, verse 1, he says something. He says, I have rejected him. That's what he says. Now, God can say it. You know why? Because God is the only one who's holding the stamps. One says rejected, one says approved. And the sovereign God has stamped King Saul rejected. He's the only one that can do it. And he has said, King Saul has been rejected. To understand Saul's rejection, 
uh, we have to go back and pick up the story in chapter 7 and 8. Because in chapter 7 and 8, Samuel is serving as judge of Israel, but, but, but something happens to him in chapter 7 and 8 that if we live long enough will happen to all of us. Samuel realizes, and those that he is serving realize, that he is getting old. And I just want to tell you, for some of you that are young, that getting old ain't no fun. It's just not fun. And some of you, some of you out there are a lot older than me, but I'm a lot older than some of you. And for those of you that are younger, I mean, let me just share with you that uh, there are some difficult days ahead. <laughs> there are some days ahead that, that are going to just, just not be pleasant at all because when you begin to get old, some things begin to happen that you never thought would happen. You, you, you go to bed one way and wake up another way. Uh, you go to bed feeling good, but in the morning it's hard for you to get up out of the bed. Uh, you go to bed with nothing hurting, but you wake up with things hurting that you didn't even know you had last night. You go in a room knowing full well what you went in there for. And then suddenly when you get in there, you can't remember. I know the young people are saying, what is he talking about? I'm warning you the day is coming that you're going to go to bed and all of your hair is going to be one color. And you're going to wake up thinking that somebody came in my room last night and put some color in my hair because I'm looking in the mirror now and what was black when I went to sleep is now white. I don't understand it. Getting old is not any fun. And Samuel realizes and admits, here's a problem that oftentimes we face, we don't like to admit it. <laughs> we think everything's all right. Uh, Samuel admits that he is getting old and the people recognize that he's, getting, he's not doing things the way he used to. And so he decides to appoint his two sons as his successors. So he appoints his sons, Joel and Abijah, to be his successors. Uh, but once they are appointed, Samuel's sons fall victim to the temptation of material gain and they fail miserably. So the people come to Samuel I say, Samuel, you've gotten old. You've appointed your sons. Uh, they have failed miserably. We don't, we don't want them to be over us. Here's what we want. We demand to have a king. Here's the problem. The reason why they demanded to have. They said, we want a king like every other nation. That was a huge, that was a huge mistake, a huge problem. It never ends well when you compare yourself to someone else. It never, and nothing good comes when one compares themselves to others. That's a word for a lot of the young people that are in here this morning. Uh, be careful about comparing yourself to others. Let me share this warning. And, and not only the young people, there's some old people, <laughs> older people that have that same issue. But can I share a warning with you about that? Here it is. Watch this. Don't let the green grass fool you. Don't let it fool you, because it can fool you. You can look over and think that everybody else has it so much better than you do, and you have this desire to compare yourself to everybody else and think, if I just had it like them. I remember growing up when I was young, I used to think like that. I had friends I used to play with. One of them was named John. That's not his real name because this is a true story, and I'm, I'm changing his name to protect his identity. But I can remember growing up, 
uh, playing with John and his younger brother. We would play all the time in our neighborhood. And I always thought, because I don't have a brother, uh, it's just me and my sister, I always thought, man, I would love to have the life that John has. Man, I was just, lo- I-, I was comparing myself to him, not only because he had a brother and I didn't, but there was just other reasons. I thought, man, he got it. I love to live in John's house. Until the day that we were playing outside John's house, just playing, having a good time like children do, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, his mother burst out the back door running for her life, and behind her, hot on her heels, was John's dad. And he eventually caught her, and what happened at, when he caught her didn't, it didn't go well. And so it was revealed then that there was a deep, dark secret that was going on in John's house, that John's father was very abusive. And the whole neighborhood knew that day because it was put on public display. And so I learned a valuable lesson that day, although I don't know how well I learned it because throughout life I continued to compare myself to others. But I learned a valuable lesson. I, I didn't have it all so bad after all. It never ends well when we compare ourselves to others. So God, through Samuel, as the nation is comparing themselves to others and wanting to have a king simply because the other nations did, God, through Samuel, tries to warn them about the king they thought they wanted. They were letting the green grass fool them. They thought it was so much better. Listen, let me say this. Uh, you, you have to be careful because things are not always as they appear. There's oftentimes secrets. We have to be appreciative and thankful for what we have. But God tries to warn them. He says, listen, tell them, Samuel, that if I do give them a king, This is what the king is going to look like, and this is what he's going to do. This is how he's going to treat them. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, vineyards, and olive yards. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. But the people respond, none of that matters. We want a king like every other nation. So in chapter 9, God relents and Saul is chosen as the first king of Israel. Saul now appeared to have all the makings of a king. He was tall. He was attractive from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a capable and experienced military leader. But he also had a rebellious nature and would not share his power and popularity, which led to trouble just as God predicted that it would. Chapter 13, his trouble begins. Chapter 13, he failed to wait for Samuel at Gilgal and made excuses for his failure. Then in chapter 14, he neglected the needs of his own men and swore a foolish oath that almost cost the life of his son, Jonathan. And then finally, in chapter 15, we find the straw that breaks the camel's back. 
Because in chapter 15, God says to Saul, go to Amalek. Amalek has treated my people wrong. They've been evil to my people. So go to Amalek. And when you go to Amalek, destroy everything in sight. Don't bring anybody or anything back with you. Wipe it all out because of how they have treated my people. And so Saul, in chapter 15, goes to Amalek in order to carry out the orders of God. And when he gets there, he changes his mind because he notices that there are some some livestock that look like they would be good for sacrifice. And then he decides, rather than taking everything and everybody out, he's going to bring back the livestock and he's going to spare King Agag. And so he does that. He brings those things back and that man back. And then Samuel confronts him. And I can just see in my mind's eye, you know, all preachers have a mind's eye. Do y'all have that? I mean, uh, sometimes I call it a sanctified imagination, a, a mind's eye, whatever. Y'all, nobody else has that. Okay. <laughs> I can see in my mind's eye when Samuel approaches him, he sticks out his chest and Sam said, did you do what God sent you? He says, oh, well, well, yes. I did everything that God, remember he already has two strikes. I've done everything that God sent me to Amalek to do. I have obeyed God and Samuel says, you're lying. Now I'm making that up. That's not in the text, but I can just imagine again in my mind's eye, that might be what he said. And he says, well, this is paraphrasing, and, and well, how you know I'm lying? <laughs> Samuel says this. This is in the text. He says, if you did what God sent you to do, then what is this bleeding of the sheep and this lowing of the oxen that I hear in the background? Don't you realize, even since you're trying to make up excuses that you brought these things back to offer a sacrifice? That's what we do. We make up excuses. He says, don't you realize that to obey Saul is better than sacrifice. And so, because of these three strikes, God has rejected Saul. He's rejected him. And he says it in verse 1, and then the next thing he says, he says, I have rejected him. And then he says this, I will send thee. Now, here's the thing. You have to know that when God, the one who has supreme authority, who's unmatched, who's sovereign, who has supreme wisdom, whenever God sends you or anybody somewhere, there's a thing that that goes ahead of you and meets you when you get there. It's called favor. I want to tell you a little thing about favor. Favor is not fair. And really, we don't want God to be fair because if God was fair, we would have gotten what we deserved a long time ago. But because he's not fair, he allowed us to have his mercy and experience and live in his grace. But he says, I will send you. And I want to share with you that when God sends you somewhere and you've been sent by him and you're going because God sent you, his favor will be there waiting on you. And even though there may be people there that don't like you, now, I know y'all are saying, everybody likes me. I got, a, I got another news flash for you. I got, you may not know it, but there are some people that just absolutely cannot stand you. See, some of y'all are looking at me like, this guy's lost his mind. I'm telling you the truth. You may not know it, 
But watch this. When God sends you somewhere, what will happen will even baffle them because they will find themselves being a blessing to you and not even understanding why they did it. God's favor will go with you when he, he says, I will send thee. And we know from the story that he sends Samuel to Jesse's house and favor finds him there. He says, he says to Samuel, now, I know you're worried about what's going to happen when you go, but he says this. He says, don't worry about it. Here, here's what you do. Take a heifer with you. Now, 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 that's a cow. <laughs> Just clear that up. Take and tell them that you've come to sacrifice because it was the role and the responsibility of the judge of Israel to offer periodic sacrifices. And he says, take a heifer with you. He's not lying because it was his role and responsibility to do it. And, 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 and then everything will be okay. He finds favor when he gets there. Then he says this. He says, I have, when you get there, I have provided already a king for my people. God can say it. He didn't say, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm going to try to provide it. He says, I have already provided me a king. This is the sovereign God of the universe has made a final decision. And he says, I already have somebody. He can do that. So the first thing I see is God's wisdom is unmatched. Next lesson I see in the text is this. God's wisdom is revealed in his attention to detail. God's wisdom in verses 1 through 4, you'll find is revealed in his attention to detail. His ways are not random. His ways are not accidental. His ways are not coincidental. They don't happen by chance, but rather he is very specific in everything and intentional in everything that he does. There's a great deal of foresight and planning that goes into anything God does. He's never, unlike us, God is never caught off guard. He's very deliberate in everything that he does. Let me prove it to you. It's in the story. He sends Samuel to a deliberate town. Sends him. He doesn't, he doesn't just pick a random place. He doesn't just, just pick a place and put his, put his uh, finger on the map and say, go. He picks a deliberate, he says, go to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethlehem was just a small hamlet located about six miles south of Jerusalem, but it was well known to the Jewish people. Uh, Genesis chapter 35, verse 19, Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, died near Bethlehem while giving birth to Benjamin, and then she was buried there. The story of Ruth, the Moabitess, is set primarily in Bethlehem. It was in Bethlehem that Ruth met and married Boaz and gave birth to Obed, David's grandfather. David himself was born in Bethlehem and would go on to make it famous. The prophet Micah, in chapter 5, verse 2, proclaimed that the Davidic Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And of course, this prophecy is later proven to be true, as Bethlehem is, in fact, the birthplace of the long-awaited Messiah. God does everything in a deliberate way. Nothing is done at random. He sends, he sends Samuel to a deliberate and a specific town. Then he sends him not just to any old family. He didn't say, when you get to Bethlehem, just go knocking on doors. He didn't say, when you get to Bethlehem, I'm just going to pick a family out of the air for you to know. He says, when you get to Bethlehem, I'm going to send you to a deliberate 
and specific family go to Jesse's house? Why does he do this? What, what's going on here? What's, what's the significance of Jesse's house? Why does he choose this family? Well, if you trace the history, you'll see that God had been at work long before now in this family planning for this time. He brought Rahab, a pagan idolatress, into the nation of Israel, and she married Salmon and gave birth to Boaz, who marries Ruth and has Obed, David's grandfather. God does everything in a deliberate way. He sends him to a deliberate town, to a deliberate family, but then he says, when you get to Jesse's house, there's going to be a specific person that I'm, that I'm asking you to look for, which brings me to my, to my third and final point. Not only is God's wisdom unmatched, not only is God's wisdom revealed in his attention to detail, God's wisdom often challenges our preconceptions. The evidence of this is in the remainder of the story in verses 6 through 13. So here's what happens. God sends Samuel to anoint the next king. The problem, there's a problem. The problem is that the only experience Samuel has with anointing a king was when he anointed Saul. And this creates a problem in Samuel's mind because he's thinking about that time when he anointed Saul. Remember back then in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says that Samuel looked kingly. He was very handsome, very tall. In fact, he was taller than anybody in Israel. So because of his past experience, Samuel goes into the situation with a preconceived notion about how a king should look. It, it, it causes a problem. It causes tension in the situation uh, that he's already made up in his mind that he knows what the king is going to look like. Now, 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 we have to be careful and not be too judgmental about Samuel because all of us have preconceptions based on our past experiences. We can't help it. We have biases, prejudices, whatever you want to call it, that are just built in because of our past experiences. Uh, the late theologian and preacher, Dr. Charles E. Booth, contends that there are many things that go into making up your slant, your view, your outlook, uh, on life, your preconceived notions. There are many things that go into us that serve to make up those things. He, he says that those things are, are streams or tributaries that flow in through us through life, that shape and mold our psyche. Uh, things like family, uh, uh, things like the, the, our, the family, that we're, the DNA that we have, our biological and sociological and physiological DNA flow into us all through our life and they serve to formulate our view on situations, community, the community that we're raised in, that, 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 that has inside of it certain norms and certain mores that are just poured into us and those things serve to make up our outlook. Our education is one of those streams, one of those tributaries that make up our view and our preconceptions. The friends that we have help to build what we think about life. Not only friends, and I know nobody has none of these, but also enemies. Enemies that we have can, can form certain ideas in our minds about situations before we even go into them. All of these things make deposits into us and collectively they make up our experiences. Experiences can cause a problem. Experiences can cause you to go into a situation thinking you already know the outcome because it happened that way before. Can I say it like I want to say it and just give you my version of what I want to say? If, 
God will flip the script on you. He'll flip that thing all the way around. You think you know how it's going to go because it's gone that way the last 10 times, but God will turn that thing around and, and, and flip it totally, and you'll just be amazed at what he has done. One must temper or suspend any predispositions when dealing with God. His wisdom and ways surprise us sometimes because we can't see what he can see. It's in the text in verse 7. In, in verse 7, he says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God is able with his x-ray vision to see the heart. We can't do that. And so oftentimes, we've already made up our mind just on outward appearances, what we think is going to happen. God sees deeper than that, and he will absolutely blow your mind and change things up in a way that you never thought he would. That's what God does. And in the story, we see it play out. Because what happens is, is that Samuel arrives at Jesse's house. He's already done the whole uh, sacrifice, and I came for this thing. And now they're at the point uh, in, the, in, in the festivities, if you will, that the sons have to begin to be marched by. And so Jesse begins to bring his sons in. And remember that Samuel is coming to the situation with past experiences on his mind, with preconceptions on his mind. And so when the first son comes in, it's Eliab. And when Samuel sees him, Eliab reminds him of Saul. He's tall. He looks like a warrior. And so in Samuel's mind, he says, this has got to be the king. Because it reminds me so much of the way it happened last time. But God says to him, like he'll often say to us, I have rejected him. That is not him. So then Jesse brings in his next son, Abinadab. And when Samuel sees him, he thinks, well, if it wasn't Eliab, it must be Abinadab. God says, no, I rejected him. Then Shammah comes and Samuel believes, well, it, it, it has, it hadn't been any of the other two. It has to be him. God says, no, neither have I chosen him. So the story says that seven of Jesse's sons are marched by and God rejects all of them. And so Samuel says to Jesse, Jesse, uh, are these all of your boys? Because neither of these fit the bill. Something's going on here because none of these boys fit. God has rejected all of them. And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one, but he's the youngest. And he's nothing but a shepherd boy. And he's out right now minding the sheep. You don't really want to see him. Surely it can't be him. After all, I mean, he's ruddy. You don't want to see him. Samuel says, send for him. We will not sit down until he comes. And here's what I like about the way God does things. As soon as David's uh, shadow darkens the door, David doesn't say anything. He doesn't make any movements. He's not even introduced. As soon as his shadow darkens the door, God says to Samuel, Samuel, get your oil out and anoint him because that's him. That was an amen moment. And y'all totally missed it. But it's okay. There are going to be some more. He says, he says, he says, anoint him because that is 
him. David was the youngest of eight boys and the least likely to succeed. He wasn't even invited to the gathering. But God uses, always uses the least likely to do the almighty. Always. That was in this, I told you it was another one coming. He always uses the least likely to do the almighty because he sees what's on the inside and he knows that what's on the inside is what counts. He always, 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 I can testify about myself. I feel like I'm the least likely, but God decided in his grace to allow me to do what I do. I don't look like I'm supposed to be doing what I'm doing. And watch this. If you'll be honest, whatever capacity you serve in the kingdom, and you may say, well, I don't do it. Yes, you do something because all of us have a role to play in the kingdom. And whatever role it is that God has you playing, if you're really honest with yourself, you don't look like you should be doing it. But God uses the least likely to do the almighty. David became the greatest king in the history of Israel an ancestor of Jesus, listed in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He became a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't even invited to the gathering. Saul may have been a physical giant, but David was a spiritual giant. Can I give you a little application for this? You may not look the part, but God is not concerned with that. He wants to shock the world by using you. you. May not feel like you have the background, whatever it may be, but God, you may not have even been invited to the gathering, but God wants to use you, shock the world by using you. You say, well, how do you know that? I know it because it's proven all throughout Scripture. Can I give you just a few examples? There's a lot more, but can I share just a few with you of how God will use those that, that are least likely to do the Almighty? He used Moses, a murderer. Nehemiah, a layman, Amos, a simple herdman from Tekoa, Peter, a fisherman, Matthew, a tax collector, Paul, a persecutor. And right about here is where I get a little louder because I remember that he used a baby boy born in a manger, grew up as a carpenter, a tender plant, a root out of a dry ground, uh, had no form or comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. Is there anybody here that knows where I'm going with this? He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, we get all that description, but I still haven't told you how he used him. Can I share with you how he used him? Can I share with you how I memorized it from the King James Version? This is how we used it because Isaiah says this in chapter 53. He says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But God has laid on him. Who's him? The iniquity of us all. He always uses the least likely to do the almighty. Can I close with a quote from John Piper? Here's something that John, I wish I had said this. Boy, this is just awesome. I'm probably going to read it at least two or three times to you. 
It's awesome. Here's what John Piper says. John Piper says, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. Man, I wish I had written that. <laughs> Can I read it one more time? The wisdom, we're talking about God's wisdom today. The wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. That's amazing. Here's my big idea, and I'm going to take my seat. It's not that deep. It's not that profound. Here's my big idea. God's wisdom is simply beyond amazing. I don't know that there are words to describe how awesome God's wisdom is. His wisdom is beyond amazing. Let's pray. Eternal God, our Father.